0: 185 Miles South. A hardcore punk rock podcast. Let's just do it. Let's just fucking do it, dude. Let's just, let's just
1: fucking do this thing.
0: So, this interview is taking place on April 12th, 2019. Today I'm interviewing Max McDonald, he's one of my old friends, we've known each other from elementary school, and we probably became closer friends in junior high. Uh, we actually did a little band together and never really did anything, and then uh, I'm one year older in school from him, and I remember my uh, sophomore year, this dude came to uh, high school and was selling these 7-inches, it was actually the first record I ever bought, and it was the No Motive uh, self-titled 7-inch on me, it's records. And I remember coming home from school that day and playing it on my dad's record player and just being blown away by how fast it was. Like, the drummer, he's, like, the fastest dude other than the dude from Lagwagon, you know, and maybe faster. So I was like, holy shit, like, this is what Max has been up to. What the fuck? And I was, like, kind of jealous, you know, because you're, like, 15 years old, and you're like, holy fuck. Like, my friend is, like... Knocking it out of the park, and I'm just some schlub like playing guitar in his, his uh, bedroom <laughs> still, you know. So uh, anyway, this is Max, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit. So, Max, your dad was into music and stuff. Is is that kind of how you got into playing music in general? Yeah, that's right. To some degree,
1: um, he didn't push it on me too hard, but he uh, he was an engineer. And uh, I spent my childhood going to the studios with him and kind of watching him. He was more like an advertising by the time I was uh, born. Before that, he did all the cool stuff. Like, he you know, he played bass in Billy Joel and Iron Butterfly for a stint. And uh, I think his biggest uh, accolade is that he, he recorded all the music for Spinal Tap. And so, you know, that, that actually kind of became more of a, a fun thing, like a, a fun name drop thing later, because when you're a kid, no one like cares about that movie. But when you're like, once we started touring and doing all that kind of stuff, like that would kind of like come up in a conversation. People would always lose their minds. But he, uh, he definitely didn't push it on me, but there was always like a gut string acoustic guitar, like behind the couch in the house. And he would, uh, the, the, the main thing he really showed me is he taught me three chords. He taught me E, A, and D, and he and he just said, if you know these three chords, you could pretty much play every rock and roll song ever written. You know, so you'd play them, and he'd be like, you know, this here's Wild Thing, and here's Louie Louie. and then he'd be like, okay, now you just like flip them backwards, and like now you're playing Gloria, and he'd like he'd like play a few bars, and he'd be like, you know, Gloria, G L O R A, and then he would, say, and he he like would say like, you know, like, she smells like fish and she tastes like chicken, <laughs> <laughs> and, I did, and I had no idea that those like were not the words to the to the music and so like later on I actually discovered that song I was like searching for those lyrics and then I was like oh you know because the, the joke was like completely over my head right. and so you know I listened to probably like four different versions of that song I, everybody does that I think like Patti Smith and Eric Clapton and all these people but that lyric was, a, was definitely a, Pat, a Patrick McDonald uh, unique unique <laughs> to him for sure
0: so then you're playing like what age are you playing guitar?
1: Uh, about 11 11 years old. I think it was like right around the time actually you and I had started playing together. Um,
0: what was the name of our band? Atrocity. But it's embarrassing because we, <laughs> we we, thought that we were like sounding like a death metal band even though we weren't. And that is actually like a legit death metal band called Atrocity. So like, <laughs> oh man, we were like double posers.
1: Well, how are we supposed to know? You know no, right? I know.
0: It's pre internet, right? So how would you know? How would you ever know?
1: Yeah, and I remember. You know, you and I had uh, grown up together, but we weren't that close. And the main reason I think we ended up being friends at that time is because I was in like uh, I played saxophone in in band, That's right. and I was kind of decent. So I was I was playing in the higher level of uh, of like with all the eighth graders. Yeah, you're killing junior high. Yeah, it. I was smashing on the saxophone. So. <laughs> So like, you know you and I had like lunch period together, and I remember just like walking by you in the hallways, and you'd like throw me the devil horns but with, like a really serious face, you know, and you had your pentagram necklace, and your hair was all parted down the middle and like you know i I was still just had like full on like wetsuit tan surfer kids, so it was, it was actually kind of kind of inspiring, so it was it was pretty exciting and, <laughs> and we we played our first show together too right like we we played in my uh, my dad's practice space,
0: yeah,
1: that was awesome yeah he he used to share. <laughs> he used to share his space was right next to Doctor No's recording uh, uh, space, or not recording, but their, their rehearsal space. And I swear, like he ended up next to Doctor No at one point, and another point he was in between uh Fixated and Burning Dog. Uh-huh. And he, he used to always call him Burning Dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd make fun of Doctor No because this was like what this was like ninety two or something. So yeah. that was like the metal years. Sure. And he's like. These guys don't even play music. They just sit in front of the mirror all day practicing their hair flips. They're not.
0: (laughs) So he was completely over his head too. That's awesome. So how did you end up meeting the dudes from No Motive? It's kind of serendipitous, I guess. You know,
1: we we kind of actually found out that we knew each other from before, just because those guys are older than me. I'm I'm a I was going into my freshman year, and they were all already one year out of high school.
0: And to put it in context, you're 38 right now. Yeah,
1: that's right. And so, they... Uh, well, I'm 37, but big difference. What?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. So... Uh, hey, dude. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's fucked up old all I know. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, it, it was... Yeah, I was actually just uh, hanging out at a house with some friends... Uh, some surfer guys and they knew uh pat and jeremy and they had told them they were looking for a guitar player and i just happened to be in the room and they knew that i i played around on guitar so i went over to pat's house for the first rehearsal and he was like oh yeah i know you because he had danced- and pat was like that like a super popular guy in in high school like he was on the water polo team and like he was very much like a kind of a jock in that sense and so he knew pretty much all like all the surfers, all the jocks in town. And so naturally he was like dating like the hottest girl in school and like all that. So he, uh, I had known him from before because his girlfriend had a, had a younger sister my age and we'd kind of, they'd always have like parties and their parents were gone. And I'd see him and Jeremy kicking around. They were like these kind of like, you know, these mysterious older guys that just seemed to have it all together. And, and so it was kind of interesting ending up in a room with those guys. And that was also the first time, uh, I mean that first practice, it just it blew my mind. Like, because I had just been playing. You know, we talked about this with like, with uh, Ill Repute. What was the Ill Repute record we were listening to the other day? That was like earlier, like the before they heard months. Bad Brains, probably or the something. Yeah, and we were we were kind of tripping because they hadn't figured out how to do like that fast beat yet. They were kind of just doing it like sort of half yeah. and uh, and that, that's kind of how I was playing guitar too. It was all sort of like you know, dan jigga 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 dan jigga 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 jay. Like like you know the way you play it the way you interpret punk when you're like when you don't know how to play yet. Right. And they're like, yeah, here play this riff and it's like it's like this na na thing and and I was like, what is that? That sounds like like a waltz or something. Or yeah. like like country music, yeah, yeah. you know? And so like they're like, just play it like and, and we'll like we'll we'll tear into the song and and uh, so I learned the part and then Pat starts playing drums and it... I swear my fucking head exploded. Like, <laughs> it was it, you know we played in this room with Harwood, It was like his bedroom and his house. The hardwood floors and windows everywhere. So the sound was just like yeah, he's room just, shouting like a motherfucker. Yeah, there was so much attack in there. And like he starts playing, and it just sounded like I swear I I don't think I've ever like gotten a rush like that since. You know, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced. Yeah, really. I mean,
0: that's how it felt when I like listened to it. You know, I and mean, it's it's just so fast. And the first song on the second side, like. Kicking into like this killer like lead and shit, it was, it was an insane record and it it caught everyone by storm right. It was like fire at Nard High.
1: Yeah, and it was, it, I think it was that perfect blend too of uh, you know we had a, we were kind of sandwiching a bit of a high school generation in that sense because I was the, I was young and and because I grew up with a lot of the, the the kids that listened to punk rock music in on the beach in the beach area there on Silver Strand. Um, they all had older brothers that were their age and everything else. And so there was kind of like instant uh, cred because all the guys that had just graduated high school that we all looked up to knew Pat and Jeremy. And, uh, and I was like, kind of, we were like sort of the incoming generation and it kind of just glued everything together in a way where like, even though we didn't know what the hell we were doing, like we could still get like a hundred people like packed into like a little living room somewhere. And it was just, it just, Everyone kind of fed off the energy of The fact that everyone was there And it was kind of the thing to do
0: Yeah, this is late 95 So like Punk was already popular, right? But people are like Grasping for something local They can go to Yeah, because the,
1: the scene was kind of There were a lot of bands But it, it was kind of the dark ages For hardcore, I think In general at that time
0: Right, I want to talk Just circling back uh, Before Nomotive, Just about Like, Punk broke in like 94 To so, like the mainstream and so forth But growing up as, like, kids on a beach and, like, in and out of skating surf culture, there wasn't, like, an extreme hit, right? Like, oh, Green Bay hit the radio and now everyone's punk. It's like everyone had already been listening to, like, Bad Religion and Pennywise and, like, those kind of surf movie bands already, right? Yeah, I mean, that, you
1: know, a lot of people ask me, like, when I got into punk music and when you grow up in those little Southern California beach towns, like it's such a fluid thing that it's kind of just happening in the background. And it's kind of hard to pinpoint like when you really uh, start to identify with it, because it, it was really a, you know, it was on all the surf movies that we would watch, all the skate, all the skate movies and stuff, skate videos. And it was basically kind of just a soundtrack for, for that lifestyle. Not so much like, uh, Deep into the the culture of punk rock, necessarily at that time, you know, it was just kind of happening everywhere. Plus, like the older guys were all still kicking around too, that played in those punk bands in the eighties. So they would sort of they would sort of like pepper in like a thing here and there, and like talk about the good old days or whatever, right? Right. So yeah, it was um, it was just kind of there, and uh, th- there were those bands were just getting ready to blow up too, like. Like what, Offspring became like one of the one of the biggest bands sure. around that time. But their first record, Ignition, I think it's their first record. Yep. Those songs were all over those like Taylor Steele surf videos and stuff. And so like it was actually like to a point that by the time Green Day came out, like I knew I wasn't supposed to like that, you know? Right. <laughs> it was like no, like this you're just playing
0: big... you're Green Day and you're 15.
1: Exactly. Like I was okay with like some of those bands, like being commercialized because we had already sort of discovered them, but like seeing this band you never heard of, they just come out and they look the right way and their videos are all really bright and poppy and it's just, something that about it just felt a little suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> For sure.
0: So, uh, going back to No Motive, how did you, like, it was pretty cool because you actually like put a record out and that was interesting. Like at the time, it's like, you know, bands are putting out demos, that's all like a teenager can like wrap your head around, right? It's like, doing some sort of recording and putting out a tape, but here's this like physical piece of wax and like someone that has like no idea, like really like the rooted history of like punk rock or vinyl culture or anything. It's like, what is this? Like, can you can you talk about like how you decided to do a record? It, it was all Fred's idea. Yeah, it was all
1: Fred Hammer, really. I mean, he, you know, Fred was like a swimmer guy too, and uh, so him and Pat were really tight just because they were sort of Oxnard. Like swimmer dudes, and um, so he was kind of just kicking around all the time when we were rehearsing, and uh, and I knew him from surfing too, and we you know we go to the shows, we go to shows at the living room and stuff, and he he let me ride in his car, and I'd fold record sleeves for him the whole way up, and it, it was just kind of a it, he just he just kind of he just kind of made it. We didn't even question it, you know, like particularly not me because I was younger than everybody. He was just like, this is what we're doing. You know, we're going to go to John Lyons, we're going to record four songs, you guys are going to pay for everything, we're going to rip off Kinko's, we're going to like bang the key on the ground so you can't tell any copies you made of the the record covers, and we're going to steal all the paper, and we're going to have a record, and you know, we just kind of were like along for the ride on that that one.
0: Yeah, you kept plugging away, because it was only, what, a half year later you did the split with the choice? Yeah, you
1: know, I have a hard time nailing the timing down on that, but... But uh, it all feels like it happened really quickly because I joined the band the summer between uh, eighth grade and freshman year. And so the record came out like in the fall of my freshman year, which was uh, 95, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the Choice Split came out like in early 96 or something like that. So they had to have been like within six months of each other. It
0: is a little bit of like a growth of a sound, right? Like instead of just being like, straight speed and sticking on the same note and like like you are you're writing like bass parts right is like is that like the the pre and post like you heard ignite i think i really you know i think it was is we,
1: at that time i don't know if we had discovered ignite quite yet but we were listening to outspoken a
0: lot mm-hmm. and uh they're pretty bass heavy as well
1: yeah, they were pretty bass-heavy and just, like, slower. So we we kind of, like, introduced some of those... Um, we kind of introduced some of those, like, halftime parts into the songs and some things like that. I don't think there's a halftime part in... Yeah, one of the songs in the Choice Split kind of, like, slows down at one point point. gets a little heavier, I so. if I recall. Yeah. But, yeah, those, those kind of, like, dreamy bass lines and stuff, I think those were a little bit more related to us hearing some of that, like... Hardcore stuff for the first time, you know,
0: yeah, and then you jump right in your first full length, right cynical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So cynical uh, Came out on Edge Records, which was like the guy who played drums for the that late that later version of Stalag. He started a record label
0: And uh, He uh, He also wrote the lyrics in control the song. That's right. <laughs> I think he played on the demo. We'll find out. Yeah,
1: and he also, uh, trademarked Straight Edge. From, and and Larkville, from, from, Did he really? I already know that. That's pretty funny. Yeah, but he, uh, you know, he, he soda and burrito to us at, at, uh, <laughs> but what's that it's not Baja Fresh but something like that and like you know he took us out to, to dinner and kind of wine and dine us and like gave us the whole spiel and like I think things had kind of gotten a little weird with Fred for a minute there because he was he was like beefing with some Ventura bands and some stuff like that was going on and so sure look little bit of them fall out probably yeah and also like Nomoto was always kind of like kind of ambitious I guess like we were always trying to like step it up with every you know with every new thing we did we were always trying to like like grow it a little bit, mm-hmm. and so he kind of came out like,
0: like seeming kind of legitimate, I guess. Yeah, well, he had he had done this, that. Stalag, that came back. He did that CD, and then did did cynical come out before or after he he did bleed? No, I think bleed already came out. Yeah, so he like came back and he was like doing shit because bleed is awesome, and he played on that as well. He did. He had a really interesting drumming style too. He, he would kind of mm-hmm. like.
1: He would kind of stop playing the hi hat when he would hit the cymbal. I mean, you had yeah. to stop playing the hi hat, but it, like I think he would stop like one hit shorter. Like he had to like think about it for a second.
0: It's like that jump skip.
1: Yeah, like it was almost like a like he was like almost like a shitty drummer that got really good technically, but he couldn't like get past his shittiness. And so, it, but it like worked in this. I don't know. Like that bleed record is yeah, is I mean, like something you know, it's, it's pure gold that like, I think kind of went a little bit unnoticed. Yeah. Me. We talked about
0: that on the, on the last one with Joe, the bleed record is the shit needs to come out on vinyl. And uh yeah, that's that. So anyway, yeah, he was coming in and he's also like another old school head. That's like paying you a lot of homage, right? It feels good when you're young to have someone be like interested in you, especially like a dude with like a name.
1: Yeah. And he was, and he was also kind of He's like, yeah, we're gonna bring you guys in a real studio, you know, we're gonna produce this thing like we're gonna make a real record, you know, and and hearing bleed and uh and the new style, you come out at that point and, and to my young ears, that sounded like a really good like sonically that sounded really awesome. No, they
0: were like recording a real studio, right? So like going back to what we're what we were used to, we explain a little bit about like recording at John Lyons at the living room.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean John Lyons he was so key to like that entire generation of music. And, uh, I mean, in retrospect, the way he did things was probably the best way you could have recorded young bands like that, which is just kind of like, don't overthink it. Don't overproduce it. Like I actually remember the first time we <laughs> went in the studio with him. We, uh, we ran through the song and he's like, cool. Is that, did you, is that it? <laughs> We're really? like, can't, can we hear it? And he's like, why, yeah, like did you get it or did you not get it? Like, that's that was but not like in a dickish way, it was oh, just no, like
0: no. totally because if you wanted to hear it, you had to like put in your instruments and then go into his room, yeah, he, he didn't have like the capability of playing it back to you. So, just to like lay out what the living room was and the recording recordings, like the living room was a place that, that did shows like DIY shows in the Santa Barbara, Colita area, and then there was also a engineer named John Lyons that recorded bands. And I don't know if he just recorded on the weekends or... He, he was a full-time thing, right? And he recorded you for uh, 10 bucks an hour. The first time I recorded with him, it was 10 bucks an hour. and I think the last time I recorded with him was 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. But basically, you just go. And at the end, you say, do you like that or not? And, you know, like, every time we recorded, we recorded all the music live. And then you go in afterwards for the vocals. But you guys are big time, right? You said you isolated a track once?
1: Yeah, on the 7-inch... We we had a song called Remember that had a guitar solo in it, and uh, I was still too shit at the guitar player to even play it. So Dave, our original bass player's name was Dave Brandon, and he was actually the best musician in the band, Uh, just good at every instrument. And he just so we 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 dubbed like the uh, we dubbed the uh, the guitar solo, and I think that that was like. That might have been the first time, like, John Lyons might have had to figure out how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, you had to, like,
0: stack the tracks. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, so, like, we went in there like prima was like, wanting to, like, do a solo, like, over the thing without just playing it raw, and, and uh, it worked out, because I would have I botched it if we had to do it live. So.
0: Yeah, and, and I was like, he's recording on Reels and stuff, and if I remember right, like, I remember recording that once and, like, not even getting a tape to, like, listen to on the way home. Like, we just got a dad. Oh yeah! It's like then we had to like figure out how to like get the music off the dad. So it's like you go record, and it's like you don't even get the satisfaction of like listening to it on the way home. You know, it's like oh now I gotta like find a dude that can like get it off this dad. I know, and it, there's
1: <laughs> there's nothing better than like listening to that recording right after you made it. Like but, you're because oh, you know, like what no, like, no, it takes no. us like forty five minutes or an hour to get home from Galita back sure. to Oxnard. And it's like, well, you do a four-song demo, which is like, what, five minutes worth of music yep. in those days. And, like, you're just playing the car the whole way. It never sounds more drivey and, like, more no. punchy than that, that the first initial listen that you hear it after you record it. No, and
0: I, yeah. I never outgrew that. Like, even when we did the first Somali 7 when I drove home from Rogers that night, like, I listened to it, the four songs, like, the entire way home. So it's like an hour and a half of listening to four songs over and over. It's like awesome. I know. And I think that's like, for me, I think that's kind
1: of like the the dragon that I chase the most, like even with just playing music in general is like, I can could, I could pretty much, I can critique like everything, every piece of music I've ever made, you know? Sure. And, but that is the one moment when you never do that. It's like right after you've recorded it and every song is really good to you still. Like you haven't, quite like gotten uh, enough of a departure from the song to like realize what parts of it are shitty and so like that that moment is like the thing that makes writing and recording music well it's the climax right
0: it's the climax of it like you've been building up like writing this thing and then you finally like get it out in the studio and then like when you're in your car if it sounds fucking dope you're like oh my god like it doesn't get any better than this Right, it is all downhill from there.
1: Yeah, you can. It can only get worse. (laughs) It can
0: only get worse. So anyway, that kind of like that builds a stage to you guys are gonna go like record in a real studio and like with like the like you're gonna have like Ryan Green did one song I think right?
1: Yeah. Well, we recorded that album twice because Joey had connected with this this local guy in Ventura named uh, Aaron Stipkovich. I think I don't know. He was kind of like a yuppie guy. I think he was like an accountant that. Decided to throw it all down and just, like, you know, go after his passion, which was recording music digitally when digital music was not really the way to go yet. And so we recorded the whole record, Cynical, with him, and it was just, like, it was, like, appalling, like, how bad it sounded. Like, I was, like, (laughs) dude, send me back to John Lyons, like, right now. Yeah. You know, so he goes, okay, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to uh, the Valley and record in Ryan Green's studio with this guy Adam something, and I think that this guy was like kind of like a, a Ryan Green protégé sort of dude. Okay. And so we went in there, we cranked out the whole thing in three days, you know, like music one day, vocals the next day, and, and mixing the third day. And uh, Ryan didn't mix the song, but he kind of like, you know, he kind of like ambled into the studio and was like checking on Adam, like, oh, how are things going? He's like, oh, you know, this and that. And, and then he pulls out like this uh, this trigger that he uses, like, on all his um, on all all the fat, you know, all the fat recordings yeah, that he to did. Yeah, get that kick like, drum sound. Yeah, to get that sticky kick drum. And like to us, like I could see, like you know, like there was like sunlight glowing off of this this piece of equipment sure. that he had. Just like, oh my god, like that's the thing that makes you know, No Effects and Lagwagon and all these bands like sound awesome. Yeah. And so he plugs this thing in and and uh, and then kind of like you know went on his way and that was kind of his contribution (laughs)
0: thanks bro (laughs) yeah
1: yeah and that that album was uh, like very transitional you know for us like sound wise because we were still playing a lot of fast stuff but um, dipping in to some more of the pop punk kind of stuff and I think there was a, a like a Reggae song on there or
0: something, yeah. Like, that, was a, that was a sick jam track, dude. I, I remember being at a couple parties though. That the people were like, Damn, that song is sick! Oh, yeah, I went over well in the house parties for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, we'd be like playing that, and we'll be bobbing their heads. And like Fred would be like ghost riding someone's bike off of their staircase, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Like, and that was uh,
0: what else was up? Oh, yeah, that song 924 was on there, yeah. So we could jump back to that actually because. So you guys were playing basically just like locally and stuff and you're, you're, you build up a really good following playing all around like kind of the 805 area which is our which is Ventura County mm-hmm. but you did branch out a little bit because you wrote a song about playing Gilman Street on that CD so is that was that your first time like going far out of town?
1: I think so yeah I think we played like a couple places in you know Coos Cafe or some spots like that like down in Orange County but uh, that was the first time we like you know, we we drove up there in a truck in like a Saturn, like a like a coupe car or something, right. and uh just hoped that it didn't rain. And and we the Gilman thing had just been like building up in our minds like for so long, you know, like because Fred had kind of schooled us on that, like that's like the real like the real and only like DIY like punk club.
0: Yeah, like it, what I mean, they're not. They're actually very different, but, but what CBGB's is, like, name-wise on, like, the East Coast, like, maybe Gilman's like that out here. Absolutely. Right? Like, you, if you're a punk band or a hardcore band, it's like, you want to play Gilman and you want to play CBGB's.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and we we were just, I don't know, like, in our minds, like, that was like, oh, this is our, this is, like, our ticket, you know? We're going to go play, like, a real... Club like in a real city and go do Not that Oxnard wasn't a real city, but like Oakland is and the Bay Area just is. I don't know. Like the fact that we were traveling to play made all this it, all of a sudden made everything feel really, really real. Sure. And uh, I actually remember Good Riddance was playing up there the night before, and so we drove up a day early and watched them play. It was them and Fury sixty six. That was the first time I, I saw Fury sixty six, and they they blew me away. But uh, I. <laughs> I was, I was in the front, this, this, like, skinhead dude was, like, headbanging, and someone, I got pushed from the pit, you know, from behind, and <laughs> right in the back of this guy's head, and, like, like, it almost put my tooth all the way through my lip, and my tooth was, like, grave. it still is, actually, my tooth is, I don't know if you ever noticed, I had, like, a little discoloration in one of my teeth.
0: It was a
1: dude's head? Yeah, and, was, and, like, you know, everyone's all hazy and oxnard, so, like, for the next, like, six years, like, I'd be walking up at lunch, like, or walking up to some friends and they'd be like, "Our Captain Blacktooth is here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, so, you know, we played the next night. I had a big fat lip and we played with, like, a, some... It was a band called Sub Incision. I think they were kind of like a street punk band, if I recall. Okay. And then there was another band called the uh, White Trash Debutants. Like, I mean, th- these were just, like, rough, like, you know, Berkeley street punk type of... People And, like, there was a low turnout of the show, naturally. But then we were, like, these kind of fresh-faced, like, new-school punk kids. And it, it did not go over well at all. I just remember, like... You know that kind of expectation you have after you finish a song? Like, well, I, you know... Let's, like, let's move to the songs really quick so if no one claps, it doesn't matter. But right. then, like, you get that quiet point And usually you play a show and, I'm like, if it's not going over too well, like, you hear, like, some kind of courtesy claps. And then it kind of dies down. But there it was, like, one courtesy clap and then one... One guy in the back just being like, "You fucking suck." <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a little defeating at that time because we had like that was just like the first taste of reality.
0: We yeah, had, it's yeah, so defeating. That you wrote a song about it, right? And that's just it's kind of funny because you guys would go on to play like ton and ton of shows where like inevitably when you're touring the country, you're gonna play bad shows.
1: Yeah, I know. I wish I wish we had the clarity on that at the time that we. Wrote the song because it was such a big deal for us, so we kind of wrote this this defeating song, and then the song followed us for a long time. You know, like <laughs>
0: like we, we played we, one bad show, and it's like he cried about it. Right?
1: I know he cried about it. Like I, you know, I remember when we signed a vagrant. Like we'll get we'll get more into that later, I'm sure. But like when we signed a vagrant, they were like, yeah, you know, we kind of like watching your progress, and like we've we've noticed how you guys have sort of grown and like evolved from this this first seven inch into this last LP. But that one song, man, nine to four—that is, that song is like dog shit. What's up with that? And, like, and, you know, we we go on and like the, the owner of the label, Rich, he would never, like, he would never let it go. Like, we go on tour and then kind of sit down at the end of the tour with him and like kind of give him an update, and be like, so how things go? He'd be like, oh, you know, like play some small shows and you know, but it's, it's it's good to be home. And he'd kind of lean back in his chair and he'd just be like, hey, man. Guess tried as hard as he could, <laughs> which is like a lyric of the song, you know. So, yeah, it, that song kind of haunted us forever, and it's it's, it's kind of funny.
0: That's funny that uh, he hated that song, but he was cool with Ricky's Lake.
1: Yeah, he didn't really. At least that one was like a, a standard Blink riff, you know. That's true. T Formation. Yeah.
0: Um. So yeah, and then after Cynical Scar came out, which was like kind of a. It was a it was a weird period, kind of for No Motive, right? Like lots of demoing and lots of like experimenting with your sound, like maybe moving a little more hardcore, kind of like kind of like the split with uh, the choice, kind of songs like that, and just kind of all over the place, right?
1: Yeah, we were kind of tapping into hardcore, but also um, kind of some of that '90s like emo stuff too. And so we were sort of splitting off in both those directions, but then we, we we couldn't really like completely shake like the the new school punk surfer thing either. So we were we were pretty schizophrenic in that way. Like, and I don't think that ever really left us, but particularly in that area, in that uh, era of the band, we were like we were like we had discovered Ignite at that point, which was like a game changer for like a lot of of us in our in our little Oxnard crew there. But so we were kind of tapping into that sound. And also playing some more kind of like, emotive stuff, you know, like stuff that was a little softer and a little more sensitive, I guess. Um, I really liked that. Um, what was it? Uh, that uh, embrace record, you know, that the that the Ian McKay was in.
0: Yeah, they only did one.
1: Yeah, that that record kind of kind of sparked a lot of uh, influence for me personally, and that's kind of like. What they were uh Hi. How's going? Hi. Oh, so we'll stop it real quick. <laughs> Kinda of interesting to think about how to like where did we leave off and is there just gonna be like a funny edit right there or no, I don't think it? I'm gonna
0: edit it. So we're back. Just full disclosure, me and Max actually we run a business together and we put a sign on the door, but there's still gonna be people coming in and out sometimes. People gotta get paid, you know? But uh yeah, let's just jump right back to uh we're talking about Scarred in that era, and uh, it's kind of like a funny Nardcore tie-in because we were talking about Joey Lidke and, like, looking up to him and stuff. He's, like, an old-school dude who was installing and shit. And so much related with Nardcore is Mystic Records and Doug Moody, like, bootlegging shit. Like, for instance, Il Repute, like they put out their classic album, What Happens Next? And then, like, three years later, they were just, like, dicking around in the studio, like, just demoing and fucking around and like doug moody like put out an lp called transition that was like <laughs> just stuff that they never planned on coming out and it was it's terrible like i can't imagine i can't imagine what i would do if i was a band like dude we weren't planning on this coming out and it's not like a fucking lp it's a bunch of like demos you know like they didn't have anything to do with the sequencing or anything like you know and anyway that's kind of what scarred was right like I think you were saying, like, he, he wasn't supposed to put it out. Like, it just came out. Yeah. Like, um,
1: I can't remember, like, why it ended poorly with
0: him, but... Well, that's probably why. I don't know. It ended poorly before that, and then he's just like, fuck you guys and put out a record. Oh, yeah.
1: We were on Vayron already when he did that. Oh. Uh. You know, like, in retrospect, I'm grateful that, like, the record came out because I, I'm not much of, like, a... I'm not very sentimental and so in the few in the, in the little times when I do get sentimental I could go on Spotify and like listen to that and like kind of revisit it sure and a lot of that stuff just would have gotten like kind of buried in time yeah, yeah. But
0: there's a time you're you're making a real transition into like the you know the second real phase of the band and creating what became the, the no motive sound and, and what your band is and so if you're saying that you're already signed to Vagrant and then he puts out this record of you guys sounding like totally different. Like that is pretty fucked up. Absolutely. And, and I
1: remember like us hitting him up about it and him just saying like, we're contract. You guys owe us, you owe me another record. So I'm going to get it one way or the other. And so, yeah, he just kind of busted at Doug Moody and just threw that thing out there and, you know, no cover art input from us or anything. And, uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's out there though. You know, I don't, I don't think about it too much. And some of those songs are like, they were just demos and never made the cut on anything. So it's kind of fun to go back and listen to it. So I guess no hard feelings at this point.
0: No, it's cool. It just, it, it could have been put out in better context, right? Absolutely. I mean, if, if someone could have convinced us to
1: do those songs, to release those songs, I think it would have been fun to have some input on that for sure.
0: Yeah. So that is 1998 and uh 1998 is like a a pretty prolific year for you because sadness prevails comes out which like we just said was like the the first no motive record of you guys really like finding the sound that you'd be known for Mm -hmm. um but then also that's scarred and also you played on the standard ground demo how about that
1: (laughs) that's right yeah like that was that was when the That kind of mid-90s, late-90s hardcore scene really sprouted up in Oxnard, and all of us were kind of pretty deep in that. I mean, I can't remember how we we really all dug so deep in that. I think some of that Ojai crew guys really turned us on to some of the East Coast stuff,
0: if I recall. Maybe you have some input on that, but... um Well, I became friends with the moon from Ojai because I was on AOL, and we were talking in the hardcore chat room, and I started noticing, like, we basically we basically followed Ignite, like, everywhere they went, which is kind of weird, but, like, they were, like, a mind-blowing band to me, like, that, Call My Brothers is, like, the ultimate crossover record if you're, like, into, like, No Use for a Name and Lagwagon and a lot of, like, the, the Fat and Epitaph bands. It's so, like, palatable that you... No uh, here we go. Again... Anyway, it's so uh it's such like a palatable record to like dive into and it was like mind blowing to me because I like a lot of that that fat and that epitaph sound, but I hate when bands have stupid fucking lyrics. You know, and, and Ignite was just a band that like their lyrics were great, like a little over the top, you know, like saving pelicans and shit, but like you <laughs> know, but but still it was like, hey, at least like he, he like believed it and he talked about it and like you know, it wasn't like singing about like Look at my cat. Why can't I be like that? Yeah. Well, and also like
1: the the way who produced that? Paul Minor I don't know. did do that. But the way that record sounds too, like the the drama of the lyrics actually matches the sound because that whole record sounds so big and kind of ambient. Yeah. That like it, it's it's very it's very cohesive in that way. You know, like, and I think that's kind of one of the things that I always loved about melodic music, because it has a little more, it has a little more, like, drama in it, I Mm -hmm. guess, and and that, that's, I think that's why that record was so impactful for so many of us, was because it's, like, it had that melody and that drama, but it was, it it was a legit hardcore record, too, at the same time.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, we followed them, like, we'd go to, like, every night show, like, and they played, like, really weird shows at that time, I think, just because, like, how you were talking about No Motive being ambitious, I believe that they were as well, because, We saw him on really weird shows. Like, we saw him play with, like, Mill and Cullen at the barn. And then we saw him play, like, uh, with, like, the Aquabats and, like, San Bernardino. And then then we got to see him on real hardcore shows, too. But, yeah, we were just following him all over. And then, like, I started noticing, like, this kid, Amun. And, like, him and his friends went to, like, all the same shows. I was like, well, shit, we should meet. And then, yeah, we became friends. And then, um, you know, Zarian and, and Amun and JP, like, they were all... Really into hardcore, especially like Zarian. I guess can't remember if he was from Boston or he had a bunch of friends, but he like introduced us to a lot of music. Um, but we were all, we were already doing Voice by then, you know. That's right. Yeah. So we were already listening to
1: like One Life Crew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, One Life of Strife. And Outspoken was obviously a big influence for Voice for Voice of Defiance as well, right? Yeah. I
0: mean, yeah, Voice of Defiance was like. It was outspoken and, and I guess like mouthpiece to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but better drumming and-
1: Yeah, I think I think really what it was though is like that was when we started to even understand that there was a separation between hardcore and like we started to understand that there were like different ways like there were different factions of punk rock, right?
0: Sure. Yeah, there's all these different scenes. Yeah,
1: like when I was a kid and I was discovering that music I would go to Salzer's and I would I would basically like handpick records based off of either like familiarity. Like I, you know, I bought like an aggression record because like I, I, I had seen the logo around and like had skulls wearing leather jackets and like it just felt right. But, you know, I grabbed like a Ramones record, an exploited record and like some stuff like that. And it had nothing to do with like me knowing anything about it. It was just like you're, you're going off of the cover art, really, you know. Sure, and, a little
0: bit of name recognition of you've heard of the band or you've seen it drawn in someone's backpack or the binder at school
1: exactly and and so we're like we're listening to stuff like you know 77 bands and hardcore bands and like 80s hardcore bands and then new school like Fat Records bands and like we're not really like being snobby about it we're identifying so much with one thing that like we're not discovering other music but then you know then we kind of went down the rabbit hole with like the hardcore stuff and kind of everyone started honing in on like what they're uh, I don't know like what they identified with I
0: guess a and little then... bit but I also don't think that Nard was ever that snobby and like I think part of that is because again our palette was so big with like what we listened to we never went down like oh I only listened to like Straight edge Revival or like I only listen to like the Victory Sound or I only listen to like fucking D-Beat right. you know it was like like you were saying like we just kind of listened to everything um, I don't think that ever really changed like maybe there was a year or two not so much we just started to know it yeah, did, yeah. i don't think
1: it scared us off from from discovering everything else but we started to know there was a difference right sure. i mean you know oxnard's a small town really like especially when you're in like a little niche scene like that and so you're you're definitely going to be more open minded because you know people that are into different stuff right like you know this this one dude this is a Hessian. this other guy is like a fence walking Nazi dude and like this you know this other guy is like a super PC like like a crusty punk guy yeah it's not it's
0: not a big enough town that you have like the the luxury of being like like apart from other people
1: right and and also like we weren't we weren't trying to like uh distinguish ourselves from anybody else because everybody kind of like Knew each other on some level, and and, and and we were we were friends to some
0: degree. Yeah, in a smaller scene, everyone's important as well, right? Like, you need kids to show up and pay at the door.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So, who gives a fuck who they are, as long as they're halfway nice, right? Yeah,
1: but that year was really interesting. I mean...
0: Yeah, because you're on, like, both sides of the spectrum now, like, of No Motive, like, finding their true sound, and, like, you playing it, like, basically the most, like, probably the most generic music you ever played.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and there were a lot of changes happening in the band too. I mean, that was when Dave left the band. Uh he he actually played on the first Vagrant uh like we went and did like a couple of songs for Vagrant to do like on a sampler for them. And he played on those. And that was exactly the transition when we got Roger uh Camaro to play in the band. You know, Roger was like we were tight with him for a few years before that already because we were in high school together and he had played in a uh, what was, what was his band the, by all means by all means that's right and, and he was in like half the little hardcore bands that were sprouting up too around town like, unknown truth and like
0: yeah and he was in
1: voice he was in voice that's right and he was also the the one kid in our crew that was um, recording bands you know he had a he had a four track and then he, he stepped it up and got an eight track. <laughs> And we'd record in his living room, and he record He would like demo No Motive songs and stuff like that. And so it was kind of like the obvious choice when uh, when Dave decided to leave the band, and so he jumped right in to No Motive right when we uh, signed a Vagrant, and that was also that was the time that we did our first tour. Also, you toured before the record came out. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we did. If I recall, we did not, Sadness, and the Sadness Prevails had not quite come out yet, because that, I think that actually technically came out in 99, and we had toured with, uh, with Good Rinse around the, the winter of 98, and those I mean, that was just like a total stroke of luck. Pat actually, uh, he tried out for the band. Um, after Forgotten Country Their their drummer left And they were, they were auditioning drummers And Pat, Pat had tried out for the band And that's how we kind of got that line To them And those guys uh, Those guys pretty much Taught us You know Pat's really charismatic So like somehow he was able to like try out for the band Not make the cut And then like continue some kind of Um Dialogue. Dialogue with them. And this, like, this is before cell phones, right? So he's obviously, he's calling on the phone and like...
0: Right, running up a long-distance bill. Cool. Yeah, and
1: he's like, you know, he's calling Chuck or whatever and he's like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, why is this guy calling me? But I don't know, like they were they were gracious enough to uh, take us on tour. We had played like two shows with them and Burning Dog actually before that. Um, but uh, they, they took us on tour and it was... I, I can't imagine like a better scenario like for a first tour because they were already killing it for one thing. So we were playing like legit shows every night.
0: Yeah, if it's yeah. ninety, if it's ninety eight, they're already on their third LP.
1: Yeah, I think it was uh, when when Ballads of the Revolution came out, right? So. Um we were we were and, and they, they just they showed us exactly what they do like here's here's what you need you'll follow us in your van to like every show first you gotta hire Joe Rebus first yeah that's right we brought Joe with us and uh and he had already toured with Good Riddance like he had roadied for them uh previously so like everyone kind of knew each other and the whole like touring shenanigans and everything I, like, I learned that that was a thing you know Sure. because their base player chucks like pretty much insane like he he would he, if if you ever at a show and he knows you and you have your hands behind your back like you know you can sometimes you stand you kind of like cross your hands behind your back sure you'll just out of nowhere you'll hear this like this voice in your ears going like oh yeah and then, like he like sticks his dick in your hand you know <laughs> <laughs> and the funniest thing about it is like for me like I'm not seeing this happen but like the entire like there's 500 people that are watching him like stick his giant dick in my fucking hand <laughs> and and so like that kind of stuff was you know it just, it just schooled us really fast. And, and because they were so established, like, uh, just cool, inter- interesting things happens. Um, you know, we toured in Canada and it was Canadian Thanksgiving and they, they made this huge, like we, we, we traveled into Canada for the first time and into, uh, Winnipeg, if I recall. And when we got there, there was this like huge, like Thanksgiving spread, but it was like all vegan, you know, and like, and everything, we were just, we, it just felt so well cared for. It was a very, like, <laughs> it, it was definitely not, like, a good representation of, like, what a first tour should feel like. Because we did that after the fact, you know, when we, when we toured on our own. Sure. And then that's, that's when we got, like, the, the reality, the the reality check on, like.
0: The ro- the road's rough.
1: Yeah, like, the sleeping on a park bench because the van's 120 degrees and, like, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Right, so did you go all the way around the U.S. and into Canada?
1: That tour was a two week tour. It went it went basically to uh, Minneapolis, yeah. and then we cut up to Canada, and then jammed back west. So, which was rad too, because we, you know, went across the Canadian, drove across the Canadian Rockies, and got to see the the auroras and stuff like that. And it was like, you know, I mean, for me, like the thing yeah. I miss the most about touring now that I'm a dad and I'm not playing music professionally is I, there's no other like lifestyle you could have where you just end up in the right place at the right time all the time, you know, like, whether you're driving through the desert at sunset, it's really beautiful, or you're driving through, like, Wyoming and Montana, and, like, you just get to experience these things that, like, normal people don't get to see in their lives, because people will go travel, but they're they're A to B, you know, and on tour, it's like you have nothing but time, it's a bunch of hurry up and wait, like, even at shows, like, you're if you're lucky enough to get a sound check, then you're like, you have a three hour window before and a, th- a four hour window after. And then like, and so you're, you're just kind of like, I don't know, you're just kind of, you're just kind of wandering around these different areas and finding yourselves in parts of the country that...
0: Yeah, and while you're so young and, and like somehow pulling it off, right? It's just, it's weird. It's really weird to think about. I Also, I agree with you like about the point A to point B because like to get a feel For a lot of, like, the cities in the middle of America, like, I feel like you need to drive up on them. Like, can you imagine if you just flew from, like, San Diego to Kansas City? Like, you just go up city to city and fly home. Like, it might not even feel, like, that different. But, like, if you're driving and it's, like, there's fucking nothing. And then, like, suddenly you're in a city. Like, I mean, maybe Chicago is the best example of that. Or Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. You know, you just come out of nothing and then you're in a city. It's, like... It's pretty fucking mind-blowing. It really is. It really is. And, you
1: know, that was pretty cell phone, too, in those days. And so if you wander off or something and get lost, it's actually kind of a big deal, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Like,
0: that happened a handful of times where... Or you break down. Or you break down. You break down and you're you're walking to, like, one of those boxes and and hoping someone on the other line is going to pick up. And then you can describe where you are
1: yeah and you're like you know you're using Thomas guides like to get from yeah. A to B and I don't know you're sitting in a laundromat in Mississippi somewhere and and it's like this really impoverished like area and you're just kind of I don't know I, I just can't I can't imagine not having experienced that and I feel like it actually gives me a little bit of a, a not an unrealistic filter but I I definitely don't experience things the same way as I would have had I never like seen so much so young
0: yeah I mean it's, it's, it's really creating a base for the way that you're going to look at the world right I mean there, there's a there's a reason I think why more open minded people are in like the more populated areas right because you you're around so many different types of people and you realize like everyone's pretty cool you know, like there's no boogeyman. That's right. You know, and and so like with traveling and so forth, you realize that like everyone around is just trying to like do their thing. You know, like there's no there's no boogeyman. There's so much like out there these days. It's like trying to divide us. And uh, and I think that like having that experience of of traveling and meeting so many different people from so many different places, like it, it really it, it helps me cut through like. The white noise of fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of
1: see that there's... I mean, kind of back to what I was saying earlier about the, the friend set that you have growing up in Oxnard where you actually, like, grow up with these guys that end up becoming, like, really shady people. Um, Same thing as, like, being in the Midwest uh, on tour and kind of interacting with people because they have completely different uh, value sets than you do. And their entire world is, is complete, like... Is completely different than what you're experiencing I mean, I mean do you remember like touring and trying to find a decent thing to eat I mean you go to the midwest and it's like the grocery stores you get iceberg lettuce and like green tomatoes you know like they're, they're just the exposure to what we like luckily living in California or if you live on the bookends or if you live like in a metropolis or something like that you have access to so much culture and so much food and so much uh, influence you know and then you go into these smaller towns and you realize that, like, they, they have a very, uh, a very small kind of scope that they're sort of, like, looking through. And so, you know, when, when it comes to sort of, like, the, some of the political stuff and, and just value sets, it's kind of hard to uh, relate sometimes. But it's also important to, like, recognize that people have a different... Reality and they really are like not experiencing the same reality that you are, and so it's kind of it's it's easier to get on the same page with them and not not just become so uh, divisive about everything.
0: Yeah. So, did you demo before? You said you demoed a little bit before sadness. What I'm trying to get at is, your sound got completely overhauled, and you went to something that that ended up being pretty special, like as a band and for for your fans. Like, how did? How did such a radical achievement sound come about? Gosh. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, I think Roger joined the band. Well, there was a couple of things, right? We, we had kind of uh, broadened our, our scope of influence a little bit. Like we, we liked that band Far a lot at that time also. And... I hated that band. Yeah, I could see that. And I could see like why a lot of people would hate that band. But the the loud soft, loud, soft thing. I mean, you know, commercially like that was like a, a Nirvana deal or whatever, sure. like soft verse, loud chorus. But that band kind of like um they kind of turned us on a little bit to that that idea of like dynamic in music. Sure. And um we were tapping into that, but also like with Roger joining the band, we we were able to kind of just workshop things a lot more, you know, because he was so resourceful and, uh, he was able to demo us and his brother's like a total like audiophile. Mm-hmm. Also, he has an older brother. It's like, I think he's 10 years older than, than we are. If I recall, uh, Ray. And he was into the kind of like, he was sort of into the, the, the darker stuff from the eighties and nineties, like, you know, like Nick cave and American music club and, uh, he turned he turned me on like the the Pixies and like you know stuff like that and so we were all kind of discovering a broader scope of music and at the same time like having more tools to to play and demo and listen back and kind of like see how things are shaping up. Um, so yeah, that that I think that was really like the biggest the biggest reason that we. Our, like I think to a lot of people, our sound kind of like like did like a, a hard right turn out of nowhere. But for us, it was just because we were we were working a lot, like we were writing a lot and doing a lot of a lot of music at that time. And so it just it just evolved or or devolved if, if that's your take on it, like really quickly, you know, we turned we became what whatever No Motive sort of was for the next like couple records, uh, really quickly. And was that when he stopped covering Talk Is Cheap? No, man, we did that. <laughs> we did that well into the, the the third bigger record. For us, Yeah. It, yeah, I mean... The, the, us covering that song was novel to begin with, right? So why stop? Yeah, like, why stop? If, if shit really hit the fan at a show, like even yeah. later on, we would just be like, fuck it, let's just play Talk is Cheap. let play Talk and,
0: is Cheap and get the fuck out of yeah, here. Yeah, and I'd just like stage dive in the crowd and like, my <laughs> chord
1: would come out of my guitar and and everything would just be a total disaster,
0: you know? yeah. No, that's a, that's a good back pocket song to right? <laughs> so how prolific were you right after Sadness? It comes out and like, I don't know, how, how, how well received was it like in in general? And uh, how were you getting like your feedback at that time? Well, Sadness was, uh,
1: it was, nationally, it it worked, you know? Like, we were touring. People were responding well, and uh, and it was we we had no like second second guess guesses about like like where we were headed with that. Locally, it didn't really transfer over. I mean, I think I think in in Oxnard and Ventura, you know, we we got a lot of accolades um, kind of on the face of things because people were just stoked that there was a local band that was actually like. Sign a, a legitimate record label and touring and, and doing all that stuff. And so people kind of tended to respond positively to us uh, as people. You know, we're all nice guys, too. Um, but um, I, I kind of always knew that there was, like, a little snickering, you know, behind the back happening. And that that's just kind of like a, a byproduct of, like, changing your your sound. And, like, you know, to begin with, we were never really, like, that... Punk or that hardcore anyway, and so you know it was working for us like because that's what we wanted to do. But I do think that like it, it playing in the, our hometown is always really difficult. You know, like people wanted to hear the fast stuff, the seven inch stuff, and we were like already over the the, the songs on sadness. Like we were already trying, like like thinking about the next move, and and so when we go to do our set list, it was always really challenging. You know, because We're, like, trying to play songs that hadn't even come out yet, and, like, you know, I'm a little more objective about things now. Like, if I were to go back, I would probably be like, well, people want to hear this stuff. Let's play it, you know?
0: Well, that is a really interesting thing about No Motive, and it was bold in one way, right? It's like you... I don't know. When you play in a band, there's such a balance between, like, what you want to play and what... What you need to deliver if you expect kids to like pay at the door, right? Mm-hmm. And so you guys were like pretty bold early on, like even after like Cynical was like pretty new and like not playing songs off it, you know? Like I remember we, we were in, uh, oh man, what's the college area right outside of Galita? Isla Vista? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys were playing like some outdoor show and there was like some frat dude and he was like, he started out all like, all kind of friendly, like, hey guys, uh, play Friends, man, I love that song, you know, and you guys are like, oh ah, well, I don't know, man, don't know if we're going to get around to it, you know, and this is like, Isla Vista is like, party central, like, there's these dudes cruising down the streets, like, drinking tall cans, fucking getting high, like, partying, and you know, like, there's all these different parties going on, so maybe there's like, 30 people congregating in the front, like, watching a band, you know, so, in between the songs, it's very easy to, like, talk to you guys. You kinda of blow him off and like he starts getting a little a little more heated, like, nah man, like uh play friends, man. That's like my favorite song. Like, you know, the, the C D just came out, you know? <laughs> like you're like, I don't know, man, like I'm not, not really playing friends, you know, and and then like, you know, a few more songs later he's like, Hey, play friends, you fucking motherfuckers. I'll <laughs> yeah. fuck you up. Like, I remember him well actually. <laughs> yeah, like he's pretty aggro. So like you were making those decisions like Even back then, like you're still a pretty young band, like just did your first CD and you're like we're kind of like we're on the the, we're on the kick of like just doing it for us and either you're along for the ride or you're not, right?
1: Yeah, I mean honestly, like I if I have any like kind of not like regrets, but like if I were to sort of uh, kind of triage like what happened with no motive, like why we didn't do better, like, ultimately than we did. It's because with there there was a bit of an arrogance there on our part that, like... It, it, we were just very uncompromising, but not with, like, um, sound logic necessarily. It was just very much like, this is what we feel like doing, and we don't really... Like, it, 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 it seemed very arrogant in the sense that, you know, we had this record label that was, like, paying... For our, our recordings and and trying to actually like market our music, right? So it can be sold to people <laughs> and appreciate it. And we're kind of just like, no, nah, fuck that, man. Like we're going to play this song that we wrote yesterday that no one's ever heard. And we're not going to play the song that everybody wants to hear, you know? And, and it wasn't so like uh, – it wasn't so negative in that sense. But it was also very uncompromising. And, and it also transferred over to other things too. Like if we were kind of like feeling shitty that day – we would sort of play a dud show, like we wouldn't like, you know, like s- like strap in and kind of like make it work, you know, like we would change the set list mid mid set or like we would stop songs sometimes, <laughs> like it's, you know, like every time we were playing, like I don't even know where we were, but like we were playing uh, that song solemn, it was on sadness, and uh we were somewhere in the Midwest, and <laughs> and dude, it just sounded like. Uh, it just sounded like two cats rolling down the stairs in a trash can together. You know, like, <laughs> I, I could not make out a single, like, note that was coming out, right? Of the
0: monitors?
1: Yeah, like, it just, the, whatever it was, like, acoustically in that room, like, it just sounded like total white noise. Uh-huh. And I remember Jeremy just being like, wait, 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 hold hold on, man, hold the fuck on, wait. <laughs> and, like, we're stopping the song. And this is, like, a legitimate show. You know there's, like, 700 people there or something. <laughs> and we're standing there, like, oh, okay. Like, what's happening? And Jeremy's, like, I can't fucking hear a goddamn thing. Like, and then we sort of, like,
0: fuck it. Play Talk is cheap. <laughs> get the fuck out of
1: here. Exactly. Like, it, it, but, like, the arrogance to think that, like, because it doesn't sound good to you while you're on stage right. and you get to just stop the song. Like, the, I think that that was a very funny uh I don't know. We, we had a little bit of an illness in that way that it never became like a career in that sense. Like we always sort of like, we're like, nah, man, like we're artists. Like we're going to do like, we're going to be true to ourselves always. And sure. and it's funny cause that like, that's like a very much like an ethos of punk rock and like, or like being uh, a visual artist or something else like that is like this kind of like in theory, right. It is like, yeah. I'm going to be very uncompromising about what, what I do. But I think really, like, there should be some kind of, like, relationship between what people are kind of expecting from you and what you deliver to them, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I just say it plays out, right? Like, you you make that decision, and then if you don't deliver, they have the choice to, like, see you again or not? Yeah,
1: they can drop off, and then, you know, and then the, everything works itself out eventually, right? Like, you stop selling records or...
0: You yeah, but you guys, are, you guys are killing it at the beginning, right, of... Uh... Of doing Sadness and being on tour for that. How many tours did you do off that record? Well, we did... Okay, so we did the Good Rands tour uh,
1: before Sadness came out. And then, if I'm getting my timing right, we we did a, a headlining tour after that. Um, like a legit one. I think it was like four or six weeks or something like that. How many kids are you drawing on a headlining tour? Uh, it was like... It was like... It was pretty dinky. You know, I think... You know, on average, there was probably like 20 to 50 people at every show. Um, Had a couple little good ones where maybe there were some more notable bands that we kind of hooked up with here and there. Mm -hmm. But, man, I'll tell you, those... Those small shows sometimes are really surprising. Like I, you probably experienced this, like playing in control. It's like because all our shows are
0: small, so yeah, like Except
1: ever choose from the small shows, right? Exactly. You're like, wow, how are we playing in front of twenty people right now? But it feels like nuts in here. And there was a lot of that, and, and the kind of uh, the enthusiasm that like you would get from people at those small shows is it's on a different level because like you could tell when you're talking to them after the show that they're like legitimately stoked. And so, even though the turnouts were really small, like we could tell that we were like hooking into something that felt really good.
0: That's cool because like there's nothing that feels worse than like the apathy at a small show. Yeah, and you play like a a bowling alley in, like somewhere in Western New York to like 20 people, and you can just tell them no one gives a fuck.
1: I know, and you know, the small shows are also interesting because you're not getting like uh, paired up with bands that you that you like. Are of a similar sound or a similar scene necessarily? Like you know, like well, we played in like Lubbock, Lubbock, Texas, with that band Speedwagon. Do You remember that band? Nope. They, they were called R.E.O. Speedwagon at the time, and they got sued, oh, so they changed their change the name Speedwagon. R.E.O.
0: Speedwagon, huh?
1: Yeah, but they were just like dudes with like handlebar mustaches and no shirts on and long hair, and they were just kind of like you know, just kind of like crank crank rock or whatever. Yeah, it's like, but you're like hanging out with these guys and drinking beers with them after the show, and and the crowd is just like obviously not there because they're they're like super hooked up in some niche they're just like let's go see some heavy see music. Some music yeah and so i mean that that's always like a really interesting positive outcome of of those early tours is like you're just playing with anyone and everyone and there's there's some guy like you know like a what are, what are they called the, the icp dudes juggalos yeah,
0: yeah. There'll be like like jugglos in the pit, like <laughs> it's always like jugglos. Yeah, you're, you're playing right? the <laughs> juggalos hold it down though. Like for I don't know, like, I've always respected that, right? Like those guys, they beat they they built like a whole seed. Absolutely, right? and it's like it's pretty positive. Like I think I don't. Know, I mean, there's, there's probably some shitty side to it, but I don't know about it, so I don't give a fuck. But like, it seems like pretty positive. Like you know, it's about friendship and unity and. And building each other up, even though like everyone's like a bunch of freaks, right? Like, I don't know. You you always going to have a little show in the middle of the country.
1: Well, I don't know if you think about it, really. Like, it might not be unlike being in hardcore in the early '80s.
0: You no, know? I'm sure. It's, yeah, it's very similar, right? You're like an outcast. Yeah, you know, I and mean, it's like, like palatable for them.
1: Yeah, and the, and to people outside of of what you're you're doing, it seems kind of subhuman or. Um, or trashy, you know, but but they're hooked into something that that makes them feel uh, I don't know like a part of something, and that that's better than like I don't know like joining a like a neo-Nazi group or something. Well, I think like that's.
0: that's the most positive thing about it is like even though a lot of that hip hop is like terrible, like you got a lot of these people that could have like gone really the wrong way on the racist tip, and they're like in the rap, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like. It's keeping their mind open like that, right? Like at least they're not a bunch of fucking shitty racists. Exactly,
1: and obviously they're not hating on us because they're they're not bum when we're playing and they're yeah they're, they're
0: there fucking rock and roll. Let's do it. Right. So, what other bands did you tour with? Uh
1: So you know, sadness. The first two records, sadness and diagram for healing, were, were produced by Trevor Keith. He sang in face to face, and so uh which also happens to be the first show I ever went to. <laughs> uh, so that was actually a really cool tie-in for me. Um, Did you ever tell him that? I must have. You know, he was actually living on on Strand at the time. Huh. Um, you know, the, that band's from Victorville originally. And uh, that was actually another reason, because the owner of Vagrant Records, Rich Egan, was Face to Face's manager. And uh, their... Rody or a merch guy or something he lived next door to me when I lived on Melrose Street on strand huh. and so their guitar player Chad was uh was um like kind of posted up with him for a while and i would I would bug him all the time you know and like give him demos and stuff like that and so I think I think Pat kind of like hitting vagrant with no motive stuff but then also me bugging Chad um, kind of like they were like who's this band that like these guys guys that we're really tight with like we keep coming these guys keep coming back into like our field of view somehow you know and so I think a little bit of that had something to do with like why we were able to like win those guys over and get signed to that label but uh, Trevor was taking a stab at um, producing and so Rich hooked us up with him and he produced Sadness and then uh, and then they they put us on a face-to-face tour after our uh, our first headlining tour. Uh, and, yeah, it was really fun to be able to tell them that that, that that was the first show I'd ever gone to. So, like, I kind of... We always just kind of sort of felt a kinship with those guys. But, like, it was really interesting going from touring with Good Riddance to touring with Face-to-Face because they were very much more, like... Like, Good Riddance did not give us a good idea of, like, what touring with other bands is like, you know? Like... They didn't need all their their own space and like like we were like with them the whole time. Whereas with face to face, it was like they were very much like career musicians, you know. Like they they were on a bus and um, God, if I recall, that it was when they put out "Ignorance Is Bliss" too, which was a really good record. But it, it their fans fucking went like apeshit about how much they hated that record because like they were it was basically an art an art record, you know, compared to any other. Face to face record, so I think maybe they were sort of like uh, they were sort of hunkering down the bus a lot too, and so it was interesting having recorded with them and sort of knowing them because like I, I didn't say this earlier, but Trevor ended up moving to Strand because Chad was like, "Hey, I, I I live in this spot; it's really cool," and then Trevor Trevor ended up living there too. Um, but they they very they very much were like way more sort of sectioned off and a, a, just a little less, like, uh, m- in the mix with us, you know? So we didn't really get to, like, connect with them super, like, on a super... Like, I felt much more, like, close with Trevor when we would record with them than we did when we toured with them. They were kind of on their own program, uh, touring. But the shows were incredible, you know? Like, 1,500 people, 2,000 people every single night. Um, and actually, one of... Probably the best... The best show we ever played was in North Carolina, and it was because Trevor got sick, and they had to cancel the show, and so they just moved us to this, like, venue that, like, held, like, 150 people, like, down the street, and just whoever the stragglers were from the face-to-face show, they, like, came and watched us play instead, and we went through our entire catalog. I mean, like, these guys would not let us get off the stage, and it was fucking nuts the entire time, like... Like just like a piles of, of people, like like it was like this this like churning like dust cloud of people the entire time we were playing and like Did you
0: play friends for them.
1: Yeah, we fucking played. I swear to God, we played every song we could we could think of. Like there was nothing left. It was it was incredible, and and we actually <laughs> we there were fans from that show that would like fly out to see us play when we were tour
0: after that because you just made them believers.
1: Yeah, like it was. You know it's one of those shows where like when you recall it in your in your memory like the faces of people in the crowd were like they were like uh like a zombify like they were i mean they, not zombify, they were like they were like animals you know yeah like jacob's ladder yeah it was like it was intense in in, in the in the best way like it's it, was, it was just it was a fun time I had like all around really
0: that's cool, so you come off that and then you go right back in to uh the Diagram,
1: huh? Yeah, I don't I don't know if there was another tour or not between
0: uh... But Diagram comes out in two thousand one. Yeah. Three years after sadness and three years after the Stand Your Ground. That's right. I wish I could tell you more about Stand Your Ground, but I was kind of like a You were kinda of in and out, right? Because I, I think I, I ended up taking their place on bass. You you and Corey left the band. I don't remember I don't remember who left first. I think I left
1: first because I actually recall really well that Corey was like solidly in the band still.
0: Okay, and then like we went and we did the we did a seven inch as like a four piece.
1: That's right. I think there's it, maybe it was on the demo, but I feel like the picture on the seven inch is me playing bass, but you were the bass player. Nah, so that's <laughs>
0: like uh, that's like some Euro. It's like uh, some Euro dude put out the demo on a seven inch. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, it's you playing on that. So yeah, that's cool.
1: Just like little shell tops, like jumping in the air. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: like I don't know what it was. Like a hundred got pressed or some shit. Because that same dude did the second voice in the front of defiance seven inch, and like there's only a hundred pressed or something. And that's kind of a bummer because I actually I love that record. It's better than the first one, you know, but it never like got out there. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. But back to you, dude. Enough about you, Joe. That's right. <laughs> so how do you, how do you feel about uh, diagram for healing? Like were you were you concerned about there being like a sophomore slump? Uh, not really at the time. Um,
1: that record, we okay. That what started? What was happening around that time? We were we were definitely getting poppy. You know, we were getting more poppy. Like sadness had a bit of a a melancholy kind of thing going on. And uh, I don't know if it was like influenced for some of the bands we were playing with because we were Pat was really like. Uh, he was going really deep in like pop punk too at that time. Like I was sort of going, I was getting into heavier, harder music, and Pat was like s- halfway, kind of like on a mission to like actually find like legitimate commercial success, like as a as a band. And he was really liking like really poppy stuff like Blink One Eight Two and MXPX and band. And we were we had toured with MXPX that might have actually been. Four Diagram, now I think about, it. but he, he just liked that real that three chord pop stuff a lot, and that kind of found its way into a lot of the music. Pat had a lot of influence in the writing, uh, in that era, like the you know sadness and in uh, Diagram. I think he probably wrote like at least some portion of like most of the songs, um, and uh, so that record, I don't know, you know, it it, it felt this is kinda of like the, the phase like I don't I wouldn't call it a sophomore slump, but it's it's the phase with every band where you're sort of at this point you're starting to kinda of go through the motions a little bit, you know? Like you've already sort of like done all the things that are new to you, like recording a a real record and touring and doing these things. And so it becomes more of like a not like a an obligation, but it, it definitely becomes more of like a this is a thing that we have to like figure out. And it actually took like our writing process kind of, I think touring, we weren't, we weren't we're not like, we weren't super industrious guys. Like, and so we weren't able to like write while we were on tour. And because we were touring so much supporting sadness, um, it, it was hard for us to write, uh, that record and get everything done in time. So yeah, it's a three year gap. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple bangers on that album, but we were all, I think this, the sequencing of it's a little interesting because you could tell that we were sort of like, front-loading it with the stuff that we thought was the most uh catchy but they weren't necessarily the 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 best like the best songs on the record in terms of like uh composition or like like this the quality of the song like whether it be lyrically or like how the song is sort of like put together but the first few songs were like catchy you know and That actually went over really well, like with the people that we were playing in front of. Like, it's funny because I think sadness for people that know us was sort of like the the important record that we did, but nationally and maybe even internationally, I'd probably say that Diagram is the one that we're like actually known for the most.
0: That's interesting. I think doing a second record is is just always interesting in a band, right? Because. Even though you've done a lot of stuff before, um, "Sadness Prevails" was like you kind of clean the slate, and that was like kind of a first record again. Mm-hmm. And it's always weird doing a second record because you're you're writing songs that you know you're never gonna play. Yeah. So it's like you're writing these songs to like fill out a record, and you know you're never gonna play them live. Like you're not really like accountable to them, you know. So I think that's why some bands like their second record can just be garbage. Maybe. I don't think we were that jaded yet. <laughs> I'm not saying... You're, like, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not knocking your record at all. I'm saying that sometimes the second records are not the best. Yeah, no, like, absolutely I'm not, I'm not, right. I'm not. I'm not saying your album garbage. <laughs> well,
1: I, I, just meant, I just meant... What I meant by that is that I still, like, was in that state of mind that, like, every song we wrote on that record, when we wrote it, felt like a total banger, you know? Yeah. It wasn't until, like, later that I started, like, critiquing some of that stuff and... Me, personally, I don't think that's, like, my favorite No Motive record, but it definitely is the poppiest and the catchiest one.
0: And, it's a uh, good record. You guys never, like, shit the bag. No, no but I, I do think that you're pretty spot on with, like, the the scene is, is interesting on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's some songs that are, like, you know, whenever I'm in the moment, I have a hard time recalling song names and things like that, but there's some songs on the, on the back end of that record that... And, you know, I feel the same way about Sadness. Like, if... You know, Sadness came out on vinyl. I don't... The diagram, I don't think it did. But Side of, B... of the LPs did. Yeah.
0: Oh, no, Sadness
1: came out on vinyl, though. Sadness came out on vinyl, like, I think a
0: thousand copies.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it did. Oh. But Side B of, like, any of those records, um, I feel like is actually, like... For me, it's, like, the best, like, representation of, like, where our heads were really were at, you know? Would you
0: write for that? Would you, like in your head would you be writing like the CD like when you're sequencing mm-hmm. you're obviously like sequencing your songs to be a certain way but are you also thinking about side A and side B? Uh, yeah yeah like when, when we would sequence albums
1: there was kind of like a list of priorities like not like we had it like down in science or anything but we definitely did um, the first three songs it was kind of like okay we need to like like, during this time, a lot of bands were doing this thing, right? Where they were, like, the third track is, like, the single, right? Whether you're actually going to, like, put a single out on the radio or not, like...
0: Well, it's Disconnected. Right. Disconnected goes third, dude. Yeah.
1: Like, you put Disconnected third. Like, that's... And the first song is, like... The first song is, like, a high-energy song, right? Like, you come out with the first song, it's high-energy song. Second song is kind of uh, high-energy, but sort of, like, maybe takes the, the tempo down a bit yeah
0: you're moving up for disconnected
1: exactly and then the third song is like the 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 hit and then everything thereafter is just like how do these songs kind of like like what's the roller coaster how do these songs kind of like bleed into each other right and it's funny because i think that that objective sequencing in the in the front end of records was actually really detrimental to like a lot of records and a lot of bands in that era because they were just like, well, we got to put the fucking hit third. We got to do this thing. And then you actually sort of like do like what you naturally sort of feel after that, which is like, Oh, I like the way this song kind of like bleeds into this song. And it kind of takes you on a journey a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah. I just, I think that's so interesting. The sequencing. Cause like I would do that. I would, I would always be really conscious. Like what song was starting side B. And part of that is because like, there's a lot of records that I got, like, way into like when I started listening to the Side B you know like I, I love the whole like Raw Power LP but like when I like started listening to the Side B more than Side A I was like holy fuck like this is the most insane music I ever heard in my life right you know what I mean or like the I think like, Descendants the first record like the Side B is like way better than the Side A like it's got all the bangers you know and uh also that uh that LP compilation of like all the early Dillinger 4 stuff like that was another one where it's like just side B was like so sick and I don't know I was you know you're in high school playing video games and shit it's like I don't want to keep flipping the record like I just want to like listen to a side over and over and over you know and it's like sick Uh, another one is a uh, side well? I guess that's a side A, but side A and Joshua did a good, oh, yeah. good job, You know, like <laughs> talk about front loading a record. No doubt. You know? No doubt.
1: Yeah. Have you ever? Um, you're more. You're you're a little more engaged than I am in general. So you probably have never done this, but there has definitely been records that I accidentally put on side B first. Sure. And I was like, "Fuck, this record is sick." And then, like, <laughs> and then you realize what you did, and it's kind of confusing for a little bit. And then, and then I have to like listen, like even like going back in like digitally and listening to music, I'll like start like in, in, where side B would start. Yeah, can you like, it so to unwind like, that. It's it's really hard. It's like it's weird the way things. You don't realize how things imprint on you until you do something like that by accident. And then you're like, oh, like I'm stuck with this now. Like this is how I have to experience this.
0: Yeah, I don't have anything like as extreme as that, but there are a lot of records that like I hate the first song, and like I've basically never listened to that song. <laughs> like that face to face record is a good one. Like I hate that first, like one two one two three four. You know, like that song's garbage, and that record would have been so perfect if it would have started out with song two. Like just with like that guitar by itself, because that's like oh yeah, it's such kinda a kind of sad, like kind of melancholy. Yeah, feel. it's like you you basically sum up like the entire face by face or face to face sound like in just the guitar playing by itself. Yeah, you know, and it's like no, but you had to like chuck this garbage song up front because you wanted to show your high energy.
1: Exactly, prime example of that. Of that objective uh, sequencing. You know, and I wonder though, is like if you just took out the one two one two three four. Off of that, would that song be, like, more, like, I don't know. Would you have an easier time wrapping your head around that one, you think? You can't do it, dude.
0: You can't pull it off. Yeah. It's a part of it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I, I guess the, it's not like face-to-face needs my fucking help. So, like. <laughs> well, also, like,
1: you have the option to do that now. I mean, it, I don't know if you want me to tell people this story, but one thing I do know about you is that you edited out all the scenes from The Wrestler of his daughter because it's the only shitty part of that movie. And so you actually went through the trouble of taking all those scenes out of the movie so you could watch that movie in peace, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, like, if you just need to simply edit out one song off the face-to-face record, I think you're, like, definitely capable of doing that.
0: Yeah, know? well, you know the inspiration <laughs> for that. You're right. I did edit out every scene with the daughter on the movie The Wrestler, and now it is the perfect movie. <laughs> but, but the inspiration for that is a mutual best friend of ours, Ryan Fournette, the singer of In Control. He, uh, he used to be, he used to so ignorantly hate guitar solos. <laughs> At, right. the same, at the same time, like, being the biggest Slayer fan on earth.
1: and like, Iron Maiden fan, yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, but
0: so, so the Maiden solos are a little better than the Slayer solos. Well, Slayer like, solos re- really words.
1: quickly, like, this is kind of, like, where all of us establish the difference between a solo and a lead. That's
0: true. Right? Like,
1: that was a big thing with, like, our group of friends is, like, don't start fucking wanking all over this stuff. But if you want to play, like, a nice, clean, simple guitar lead that's, like, almost like a... Almost like the vocal melody that's just being played by a different instrument. That's We're cool right. with that. That's right. And Maiden, Maiden does that really well, right?
0: Yeah. Like, even their, yeah. like,
1: tech, super technical solos, they have that kind of like lead vibe to it, not just, like, some dude that's just, like, wanking all over the place. No, it's fucking
0: beautiful. Yeah. It's fucking beautiful. even Smith don't play. <laughs> but, yeah, Ryan, like, he went in, and the double live record, the Decade of Aggression, he, on his, uh, double cassette boombox, he went in and fucking... Edited out every single guitar solo <laughs> on the double record, and then like you would listen on the tape all the time. And like if you're a non psycho, and you like it's like totally distracting because it's not perfect. Not to mention you know? on a boombox, you hear like the
1: record like whatever yeah. when you're when you're smashing the buttons down, it's like making these hard edits everywhere.
0: I know. It's like man, that's uh, that's really offensive. sounding to just take out like a
1: 15 second solo, you know. You know what's incredible about that is like, how did he find time to do that?
0: Cause he was, you know, it was just one night. Yeah, like, he just went all night. just went fucking psycho one night, like, oh I fucking eight solos. And just I can't it. take this anymore. you can't do it. <laughs> you know, and like, and that record is the shit, cause like, it's got all like the best old stuff, and it's like right up to season the bit. So it's like, I mean, that's one of the greatest fucking live records ever. Oh
1: yeah, I mean that was the first Slayer record I I heard and. Man, like, the that was so impactful, like, so impactful for me, like, to hear that. And I, I don't know, like, because it's such a good-sounding live record, too, yeah. like, you're trying to, you're looking for that on all other records after that, like, the kind of ambience that that music has, you know, like, from from the sound, the actual sound of them playing it live. So it's, that's, that one's pretty special. For you
0: me. have a banter, too, right? Uh, I'll do one tonight. Yeah, because I, so I remember I was when I was in eighth grade, I had this this terrible man called Purveyors of Pestilence, uh, and I was like trying to like emulate that because Tom Araya sounds so fucking rad, and he's like, "How you all doing tonight?" And everyone's like, "Yeah," and I think <laughs> I said that I was like, "Hey, how's everyone feeling tonight?" And Ryan yelled back, "Is all like shit." And I was like, "Oh, dude, like." My first fucking what's up is like playing in a band and I get fucking smashed.
1: Yeah, you don't quite get the same effect too when they are like playing a show in <laughs> Eric Fisher's living room, you know? <laughs> <That's
0: right. laughs> so... So you toured a lot off uh, Daylight Breaking or no?
1: Well, we toured a, we toured a lot... Off Diagram. Off, off Diagram. Yeah, we... You know, forgive me if I, I get a little jumbled up, but... We toured... I think we did another face-to-face tour... We did some like warp tour stuff, which is really interesting. Um, Let's just
0: jump right into that. Like how how was that? What year that would have been? So 2001, you're doing a warp tour. Yeah. What's the lineup like warp tour 2001? Uh,
1: I think it was like uh, like Atari's and shit. The bands I recall. I mean, there, there was always like no effects. It, it was not a Bad Religion year because I remember like Bad Religion was my favorite band for years. And to this day, I still have never seen them play live, which is really weird. But I remember like being disappointed that I was like on an off off year for Bad Religion Warp Tour, so it must have been No Effects headlining. I think Sick of It All was on it that year. Um, Atari's were probably doing it, and there were some. Uh, th- that was like when Warp Tour started kind of dipping their toes in in like the mainstream stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I think like Papa Roach was on it. Like they were like one of the big headliners. And, uh, Alien Ant Farm and, like, bands like that. Yeah. Um,
0: Rancid. I want to say Rancid was on it. Social D, I think. So what was the experience like? Because you're you're coming off, like, doing van tours, right? Going all over the country. And now you're you're doing this festival. So, like, a lot of people aren't. They don't know what it's like.
1: Yeah. You know, it was, it was. Socially, it's kind of stressful. Um. And sort of isolating for like a smaller band, you know, because people really, they kind of hunker down on their buses and it's very clicky too. Not like, I mean, just by like default, really. It's not like people are jerks or anything. It's just that like, there's these kind of veteran bands that do it and they've kind of seen it and done it. And they're sort of like, they're not trying to like, you know, rub elbows with, with the young kids. so it does have very much like a. A high schooly kind of clicky feel to it, you know, like you're kind of, kind of back there, like with your your food tray, like getting your lunch and stuff, and you see like Lars, Friedrichsson or whatever his name is, like back there, surrounded by a bunch of like people from the tour, and they all got like shit, like you know, roadie belts and shit, fucking hanging off their clothes, and like I don't know, it's unless you're like the kind of person which I don't, maybe Pat was like that, but the rest of the band wasn't like, it is very much like a unafraid to just kind of like walk up to someone and start chatting him up. You kind of feel a little bit like you're, it, it feels a little isolating, you know, especially because you kind of get abused a lot in terms of like, when you're a band doing warp Tour in a van and a trailer instead of being on a bus, like you're not super looped into like the protocol that's like, that is like that caravan that's happening and so you show up and like you're immediately getting yelled at for like being in the wrong spot or like you know like and so like logistically uh, it's it's a lot it's like really stressful it's like you got to be there super early you might be playing at like 10 a.m. or something um, but like the 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 flip side of that is that there's so many people there that are just stoked on whatever that like you're selling tons of merch and meeting all kinds of people and they come back and see you the next time you play. So it's, it's almost like a thing you kind of have to do if you want to step it up a little bit, but like the, the logistics and the kind of like day to day of it, it's pretty grueling really.
0: Yeah. It was, that the only time you ever did something
1: like that. Yeah. I mean, we did that. We did it two years in a row and like just, we didn't do the whole thing either year. We kind of did like a couple weeks of each year and, uh, you know um we had, we did some other tours with weird bills later but that was the only um festival tour that we ever did.
0: Well, you toured with NRWK. that's a weird lineup, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, he he's very like super involved in in uh the bands that he takes on tour. Like he he personally like kind of picks them out. Like obviously people are presenting him with options, you know. But um but he's he sort of like has a really eclectic taste in music, and so that was a strange tour. We were it was us and Andrew WK and the Locusts and uh, uh we played with like Mur- Murphy's Law was like on the New York shows. Like the the bill was just like super eclectic and like and all over the place. And the one thing that is like super true about him is his fans are fucking diehard. Like. You know, you want to talk about Juggalos or whatever? Like, the people that are in it, uh, A-dub, as they call them sometimes, <laughs> it, like, they are there for one thing and one thing only. It was That's pretty... interesting
0: because if he's choosing all the bands and, like, he has such buy-in and he has these, like, super fan followers, you would kind of hope that they would, like, follow his journey, right? Like...
1: Yeah, you know, but he's, a, he's such things? a positive guy, like, on all fronts. You yeah. know, like... He, he somehow turned, like... You know, I don't know if you remember the first time you saw, like, Andrew WK on TV or whatever, but you're like, this is a joke, or this is, like, a a novelty
0: thing I or whatever. I can tell you a song. I just I know that, like, bloody nose, like, famous photo. Yeah,
1: like, his, his hit was, like, this, like, song called, like, Party Hard, right? Okay. And you obviously, upon, like, first listen, like, you, you just assume that that's, like, this joke, like, dumb thing... But he somehow, like, turned it into, like, this whole, like, ethos, you know? Like, like what does that mean, actually? Like, the party's just all about being present in the moment, man, and, like, making the best out of life. And, like, and he's very much like that. Like, he his, his shows are super high energy and, like, and uh, he's got this look, you know, like, that's, like, he's wearing those dirty clothes and he's got the drummer for obituary playing with him. And, like, like, visually they look a certain way, but then, like... He's like the nicest dude in the world, and he's and every show he's spending, like four or five hours after the show like hanging out with his fans. He's like he's like putting the work in like for real. That and
0: rules. So,
1: yeah, like he has a whole like ethos about how he does this music thing, and uh, I think I think that's why his fan base is so like diehard. Is like he like he moves them and like and then they tap into that and they just become all about him. So, but also like the ultra positivity thing. They still get to pick and choose, right? Like, he, he's, like, super supportive of all the bands that he's choosing to bring on tour with him. But the crowd's kind of like,
0: yeah, cool, dude. Like, give David WK. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, is he still active?
1: Know, I'm sure he's doing something. I don't know how much of it is, like, musically driven or if he's doing, like, VJ stuff. I don't know. I'm not sure.
0: Cool. So the third LP is Daylight Breaking, which is it kind of like, I don't know. I don't, I guess you're better at sonically describing things, but it's like a a deeper sounding record than, uh, the diagram. And, and it's like, uh, I don't know for that. The next era of no motive, it's, it's almost a little bit, I think like scarred where you're like all over the place, like looking for a sound and there's some real like treasures in it, but I kind of always felt like the record after it would have been like finally like the, the no motive
1: record. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean that you know, the there was a little bit reactionary to uh Diagram in the sense that um that was the transition with Pat too. Pat Pat had left the band and uh and we wrote that whole record, uh Daylight Breaking, just Jeremy and Roger and myself, which was Actually kind of nice in the practice space to not hear any bass because, you know, (laughs) because like it just sounds really crisp when there were two guitars and drums. And we were like super inspired when we were recording that record because we had been kind of like drifting with Pat for a long time, like musically. I think the three of us were a little more interested in, in doing some stuff that was a little more complex. And we were definitely kind of like getting away from playing poppy stuff. So much and one of the like, I mean, to us at that time, it was kind of an art record. Like if we were, the songs were longer, they were a little more like, uh, there there was a little more, a little more like, uh, it was, every song was like a little more complex in just the the song writing. It, It wasn't so much like, let's get to the chorus, you know? Sure. And, uh, and that, that writing process was like probably the most I've ever enjoyed, writing music because the three of us at that time were so uh just on the same page you know
0: there had to have been a little bit of like wanting to prove you could do it without pat too right because he's such like a a big personality i mean he is i don't know it's very rare it's very rare that like the drummer is like the big personality of the band but for no motive like i think a lot of people would associate the band with pat
1: yeah, and that's that's probably uh rightfully so, you know, because he was he was the reason no motive ever like did anything, really, because he had that sort of proactive uh personality. And he was a guy who like that followed up with everybody and kept in contact with all the bands and all the indus- you know, the industry people, the managers and the booking agents and all all the people that we burned over the years basically. <laughs> <laughs> I think we went through, like, every booking agent in, like, the in, – in that scene. Like, if we were to try at book shows now, they would probably tell – they would probably all tell us to fuck off because we burn them at some point down the road. But, um, you know, Pat was very much, like, the reason we ever, like, did anything. And so I don't think we um, uh, consciously were trying to prove anything necessarily, but um, – and, like – sadly it was like he kind of gotten us rolling enough to where like we didn't really need someone to be so proactive on that level um so musically we were we felt liberated you know um because he was such a strong personality and he was so influential in the band that like he he would go into a practice already knowing like like he was excited about his riff or like his song and when you're trying to work through this stuff it's like you know how it is I don't know like if, if you experience this, but like when you're trying when you're trying to pitch like a riff out of practice, right? You could tell like you, you could kind of tell when people are responsive to it or not, because they'll be like, oh, what, what do you want me to do? Like and you're like, oh, it kinda of goes like this, like na 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 and then like they'll sort of like half act like yeah and they'll they'll kind of just let it fizzle away. And that was very much like the the dynamic that we had with pat um toward the the end there where like he'd kind of be like yeah yeah like it's like that I'm like okay cool oh hey check out this riff I got it's like you know and it's like this like really basic like pop punk riff but the way he would sell it he would just be like he's like yeah i'm gonna go black like, black blah, blah 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 you know like and he would just be like really animated and it's like he's very much like uh like he, he could, he's got like a uh he's got like a um a cult a cult leader uh charisma about him to where like he could sell anyone on anything yeah, just a, by it's
0: an infectious personality
1: yeah like he, he will just like he, he will just bring you over to his side like by any means possible and so i think like you know after years of us like feeling like we had sort of a, a democratic uh approach to the music but always feel like you were like compromising like a little too much um just the timing on that was really like liberating for us to just kind of like write, you know, regardless of like what uh how people perceive that record, like the feeling of writing that record was just like so so freeing and like awesome.
0: I mean, it definitely had a couple of your best songs on that period, right?
1: I think so, absolutely, yeah,
0: yeah. And then you did like a legit video. What was that like?
1: It was bizarre, it was bizarre. There was like a you know, we did it in LA somewhere, and there was a full film crew and like there were paid extras and there was the the catering truck and like the whole thing and it was like it was a whole day affair and um the label was like definitely it's funny because we always felt like a black sheep band on vagrant because they had signed like a lot of those uh emo bands from that era like get up kids and uh alkaline trio was doing really well like Dashboard Confessional There was like There was all these bands That were just like Slaying it In terms of like Record sales You know And uh And we always kind of Felt a little Um Like Like Black Sheep In that sense Like we didn't quite belong Because we were a little We were just like California dudes You know And uh The label though Seemed to think That we were The band that had Some real like Uh Mainstream Kind of Commercial Prospects You know I think there were like, Some of the music We were playing Like Well the song That we did the video for Into the darkness It very much Like kind of Fell in line With some of that Hard rock stuff That was on the radio At that time Like Like uh, What's the Incubus or whatever Like okay. You know Like mainstream uh, Bands like that Like we could almost Sort of like Cross into that world A little bit uh, At that point With like the way We were starting To write songs And so Yeah We they 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 actually made the investment of like, hey, let's let's like choose a single and like put some like Go money behind it. it, do it do like a full like radio campaign and like uh you know do the video, get a publicist and like do all that kind of stuff. Do you think there was payoff from that? Um I don't know, man. Those were some rough years. Like the the process of writing that record was really fun. But when we started like touring on it, um we felt kind of a little bit like in the wilderness, you know,
0: like Thank you play friends.
1: Yeah, I mean, like there was none. Of, like we weren't getting like flack from our fans necessarily. We were touring with bands that our fans would never go see, mm. and like I, I would say, like if if what's we what's an example of that? Uh, we toured with this band. Um, well, I mean, Andrew WK was a great example of that for one. That's so, yeah. the other. Another one was like we toured with this band called. Uh, Finger Eleven okay, and they were like they were like a Canadian like hard rock band like.
0: but why would your fans not go like were they w- was like the price point high like you're playing with a like a mainstream dance it's a $30 ticket or I don't understand
1: yeah like they they would they would go see us play a support tour for um, Green Day or something you know sure. like a band like that but it's just crossing over into a world that people don't want to touch. If you identify at all with like, whether it be pop punk or, or indie rock or whatever, they're like, I'm not going to go see fucking finger 11. Yeah. You know? Especially because the other bands on the tour were like more in that category. <laughs> they were like the full, like i and war, like that kind of like chin rock right. stuff, you know, where the guy's sticking his chin out and like singing like the, the guy from creed or whatever. It was, yeah. it was fucking appalling, dude. Like, in the the band Finger Eleven, those guys are actually like really nice guys and technically they're amazing players and so it was entertaining to watch them do their thing every night. But like being in that world where you're like in the the crowds is like we just weren't used to the crowds either. Like that that was a fucking group of mouth breathers if I've ever seen one, you know? What do you mean? Uh, just like the people that are like really bought into that radio shit. Yeah. They're like they're they don't identify so deeply with music. Like, music is not, like, their, um, a thing they spend their time on.
0: Yeah, you know what, though? I, that's such a, that's so, it's a weird dichotomy, right? Because sometimes I feel like those people, they, they, like, I don't know, because I'm such a psycho of music, but sometimes I feel like they can actually enjoy music more than me. You know, like, where it's so deep, and, like, music is such, like, an all-encompassing thing in my life, and, all these different like scenes you get into and so forth. Like they just want to hear a song. They like come on the radio and they get fucking stoked. And like I've I've always been like a little envious of that. Oh, and, right. like like my favorite song has never come on the radio. Mm-hmm. It never will. Like can you imagine like how fucking great that would feel? Like here's my favorite song, and I'm just like you know you're driving down like like an example like you're saying before like you get that perfect time when you're driving through the desert and the fucking sun's just ducking behind the hills and then your fucking favorite song comes on the radio. Like, can you imagine that? Yeah, like, this is my song. Like, 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 just get all into it. yeah. Yeah, like, the closest I could ever think about that was, like, I remember one night I was driving home after making flyers at Kinko's and, like, some fucking classic rock station played, like, two Maiden songs in a row. You know, I was like, oh, shit. It was, like, like Rock Block Weekend? Yeah, I got a second one, you know? It's, like, I don't... It's not just a trooper, like, whatever, you know? But I... I I don't know. Part of it is easy to, like, shit on people that, like, don't ever go below the surface level. But, I mean, I'm just... I'm envious of it sometimes, too, to just, like... Just something comes on, and they're like, yep, I like it. I like you the know, hook, I like it, and like there's nothing wrong with that. You well, know?
1: I'll tell you one thing man i would I would give my 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 right arm to be able to hear music with my young ears again, you know, yeah, like when I hear a song, you know, because I have played music for so long, like it's already dissected, like I'm already hearing listening for what people are doing, i'm like I'm kind of like the the kind of uh, I don't know it's like objective and subjective at the same time like I'm able to separate out the sound and like kind of hear it like like uh, kind of like broken up like that like almost like I digitize it in my brain and it's like when you're a kid like and you you don't know shit yet like you were just it's, it's very visceral, you know? You hear the music, and you feel the energy in it, and you're not, like, you're not analyzing it at all, and you're just really experiencing it. And I think that's probably what it's like for most people.
0: Probably. I mean, also, like, the problem now is that there's just so much music. Like, you have access to everything, right? Where, like, when you're a kid, you get, like, a dub of a tape, and it's like, I'm going to love this. Like, even if it's shit, you're going to find something on there that you like, you know? Like, I remember buying, like, seven inches, you know? It's like, let me take a chance on a seven inch, and you, like, buy it, and you know you'll fucking like it, but you like a part of a song, and it's still, like, going to make the cut. Like, it's going to get dubbed onto a tape, so I can listen to it in my car, because I like one part of one song. (laughs) Yeah, and it's, like, really tactile,
1: too, right? Because you're, like, looking at the record sleeve while you're listening to it, and sort of, like, really getting to know... Kind of like the ins and outs of the whole thing and But yeah, I
0: can't imagine Getting to like listen to music again Like with 13 or 14 year old ears
1: Yeah, I mean I, I noticed a difference just because You know, I've been out of music uh, Like as a As an identity for uh, At least at least 10 years right now
0: Hey, sorry this, What's that? Something's up What? With Mike, he's like I don't know what We're back again Um So, just uh, following up there on Daylight Breaking, you were talking about having Pat leave the band, and uh, Dave Brandon had already left the band, so you had uh, Roger playing bass, but then when Pat left, Roger being the the multi-skilled dude he is, he just simply slid over to drums, and you got a new bass player. That's right, I actually forgot that Roger had moved over to drums, um, which he was a drummer originally. Anyway, so that was kind of like the sensible thing to do. That's another face-to-face tie-in, right? Like I remember Roger telling me one of his earliest music goals was uh, whatever the fastest song on uh, that first face-face record. Like that was his goal to be able to play that fast. I think I know the song
1: he's talking about. It's like it's cool because it's not like a do that do that song. It's like a do da do that do da do that do that do that. But like it's a really fast version of that song, so I can see why that would be a goal for a drummer. Um, the Roger the way Roger plays too is he like Pat is like the most solid drummer in the world, mm-hmm. and and he keeps it really like straightforward. And Roger is kind of like a little more fluid. And so for that musical progression, it was really cool to have Roger move to drums because he it it lent itself to that style. Whereas Pat's style of playing was really perfect for like what we were doing before, so that was cool. But uh, yeah, I did leave a avoid so we brought uh jeff hershey on um after we kind of finished writing the record he actually he actually wrote uh he played and wrote one or two songs on daylight breaking with us as well um and jeff was a, he was he was a fun pick because i had known him since high school as well He was, like, a Hessian in high school. He played in a metal band called uh, Black Opal. Opal. That's right. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I remember, like, he was, like, totally bought in, too. Like, we'd play, like, Laser Star, and Black Opal would play, and he'd be wearing, like, vinyl pants and, like, just totally all, like, doing the whole, you know, he he was ready for, like, the big stage, like, right out the gate. But he was also, like, a, a gear junkie, which is really cool because when he joined the band... Um, the technical part of like all the gear and everything else was like he like he turned me on like a lot of uh, he, he, he turned me on like a lot of high end sort of gear stuff and so you finally sold your crate yeah got rid of the crate finally <laughs> and like and uh, and he's he's also kind of a chameleon in the sense that he could he could kind of play he could emulate like any style that he wants he's like a natural talent that way it kind of like emulates any style and like like what he plays in that band Night Demon now, and and they just kind of, they just kind of like crank out that style of music without even thinking twice about it. it just kind of well, yeah. That, I mean, before
0: know. and before that, doing the the heartbeat stuff, right? Like he he wanted to start a a soul band, and he started a fucking soul band, dude. Yeah, he just did it. Yeah. yeah, and they're like legit. Like I seen him like he's up there singing and dancing. Like I seen him split his pants. You know, like he's like dancing and shit. They're playing a show. He fucking splits his pants. And the fucking band just goes into, like, this jam session. He has to run across the street. It's, like, in North Park, and you got to park in this, like, uh, parking complex. He runs to his car, changes his pants, comes back down, and, like, they in the jam session, just belt right into another fucking song.
1: Right. And personality-wise, too, he kind of stepped right into Pat's, like, thing, where he, (laughs) like, he's the guy that's, like, will bring you over to his side no matter what, too, you know? Like, he's so uh, enthusiastic about everything he does... And he's so body like when he was doing the heartbeat stuff, like he'd be on stage like, "Hey, you, I want to fuck your girlfriend right next, sitting right next to you." Like, like, oh. he, like he, he doesn't give a fuck about what he's saying or doing as long as it's like getting like a reaction out of people. And um, in a non
0: dick way, we should not say. It,
1: right? No, I mean unless he's like intentionally trying to be dickish, like for the sake of the role that he's playing, sure. right? But he's very much like that too, where he, he makes a decision about, um, like Jeremy No Singer is like the opposite of that, where he's like, you don't know what's going on in his head at any given moment. And Jeff is very much like, this is my goal. This is like, this is what I want to, like, this is how I want to come across. This is how I want, like, what I want to accomplish. And I'm going to do that, like, to the T. You know?
0: Yeah, he's like I'm gonna put one line in Spanish on the Night Demon record, so all the kids in Argentina <laughs> lose their fucking dicks.
1: Exactly, and he's so knowledgeable about music, and he's a music fan more so than anyone else I know too. Like, we'll go to every tour that's coming through of any band he's ever liked. Period. You know, and he's kind of like got a little bit of a like he's he's he knows how to schmooze. He knows how to like get in there with people and. And so he he was the guy that like when when he joined the band, um, we were we were always the same as we had always been and kind of like did our own thing. But he would like really like buddy up with the other bands and like and just he's very charismatic. So him joining the band was was really cool. I feel sort of bad that we were sort of tapering off at that point. Like we were kind of like you know not really sure like what we were trying to do anymore and like. We were just getting a little burnt out at that point. Yeah, but it
0: gave him like enough of a confidence and like you guys kinda gave him the the rub of legitimacy that he was able to like go on and do other things. Like I don't know if he didn't if he didn't do that run of no motive, like would he have had the the ego and the balls to like do like the heartbeats?
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean I I think no motive for him actually Brought him out of the 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 stereotype that people had kind of like cornered him into, you know, like everyone kind of. Well, he he worked at the Ventura Theater for years, and like out, out like when when he stopped like being a musician locally for a long time, he kind of was like uh, not doing stuff that would like lend him to be a musician like professionally. And then him like joining the band and touring with us for a couple of years, it just like kind of opened him up to like a lot of different possibilities and and he took advantage of that, you know. And he's definitely um, he's doing that on a level that none of us are anymore, and it's kind of cool to see him doing that stuff. But yeah, he's slaying it, Night Demon, Night Demon, yeah. So yeah, he was he was a he was a,
0: a crucial addition. Like he kind of injected some energy into the band that like we needed at that time. So, not to jump from that to the uh, inevitable end, but you guys, how long did you go off that record, and when did you guys kind of decide to, you didn't do like a real breakup, but when did you decide to do a hiatus?
1: I think we were doing our, the last tour we did was a, kind of a short headlining run. Was that the one yeah. where you borrowed the
0: Inga the van? Yeah. When we upholstered it, with it for you guys with, like, flannel sheets. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I felt weird about renting the van to you guys, but I really wanted an iPod. And it was, like, the, I don't know, it was, like, the first or the second version of iPod. And I remember going over, and you guys bought it for me, and you guys had already left for tour. I think Roger's parents had to give some. something. I went and got it from Roger's parents. I was, like, so excited. Like, <laughs> the future is here, dude. Like, and really, like, that's all I needed, like that was like the culmination of where I wanted technology to go. Mm-hmm. Like when it moved past the iPod, like I don't really like the Spotify and having all this stuff on my phone. Like I still kind of liked curating my like playlist and like being able to have like this giant library of music and not have to like, I don't know, just on the phone it's all mixed up with all the other bullshit, you know? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah.
1: It was kind of like right before things sort of spun out of control, like technology, tech- technologically, right?
0: Yeah, but I remember the... You know, that was a control van. We did our, our four US tours in it, and, and that van was just fucked up. Like, there's all these random holes in it. You know, like, if it rains, it's going to leak, you know? Yeah, and well, like, it,
1: you don't even realize it's going to leak until you, like, make, like, a left turn. And then, like, <laughs> and then all the water that's been gathered up the van all goes towards that one hole, and the member's like, sleeping back there just gets a fucking bucket of water dumped on their head. Yeah, yeah, or,
0: or like, if you're driving, like, there's that hole by, like, your left leg, and, like... We couldn't <laughs> even like find that hole. Like, we stuffed it with like a million shirts and shit, but it was still cold and it was like a legit hole because, like, if you go through a big puddle, like, your leg would get wet. Didn't and somebody like take a piss right there one time? Like, no, while no, driving no, or something? No, 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 no. So, the, the <laughs> van, like, none of us knew shit about cars. So, and we're buying a van to like drive around the country when we're 21. So, like, my idea was let's just buy a family van that has the lowest mileage possible. Because, like, the family probably took care of it. And we bought, it was, like, a Dodge Ram, I don't know, it was some sort of Dodge Van, and it was, like, immaculate. Like, it had, like, this little, uh, you know, like, a little station for your drinks that would, like, they were on, like, this metal pole that goes into a hole, like, in the back, so you can be sitting on the, the bench seat and, like, be drinking your drink, you know? Anyway, when you pull out that that little table, like, there's a hole that just goes down to, like, the street. So that was the piss hole. So like, you know, you are on tour and you just got to take a piss. Like, you just pee down the piss hole. It's very that's convenient. All. No, it it's better having a bunch of
1: like Gatorade bottles full of piss rolling around in the van while you are driving. So. No,
0: for sure. But if you don't block off the wind, it just blows right up. So yeah, it was a uh, it was an expert thing you had to get good at. Yeah, well, it worked great for that. Yeah, but yeah, I, I just awesome. remember like the yeah. the areas and you guys being like, "Oh no, dude, we'll we'll fix the holes." Like it we'll be able to patch it up. Like, we'll, we'll give this thing some love. <laughs> and then, uh, was that the time that you were saying like the first side of the tour, like Jeremy bought a brand new leather jacket? <laughs> yeah, he had, a,
1: he had a bit of a, a habit of, that, of doing stuff like that where he like, he'd be like, hey, come borrow some band money? And then we'd be like, all right. And then he'd show up with like a, yeah, like a, a vintage leather jacket from the 70s. Right. But at that point too, it like, we, we knew we weren't going to like Come home with like Real money And like We still had to like Work jobs when we came Home always And so The tour just kind of became
0: A bit of a free for all You know it was like... Right But he bought a leather jacket The first night of the tour And then he just left it on the seat And then it rained <laughs> yeah. And like it got flooded And his jacket got ruined The first night <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I was grateful for it, though, because
1: the van worked out great, and it was cozy, and it had, it had some, like, in-control vibes on it, so it was
0: fun. Nah, I was so glad you guys could do that, and we were able to be a, a little part of No-Motive History. Yeah,
1: I do I do recall Roger actually legitimately
0: saying, like, I don't want to do this anymore,
1: but it, it still was more of a hiatus. We, we kind of just fizzled, played a
0: few... We put out another record, you know, we put out Winter Long, it was an EP, um, but, but, like... After daylight breaking is two thousand four, and winter long is two thousand eleven. Well, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it went dark
1: for quite a while, actually. And then when we did winter long, like we were pretty much on the other life stuff already at that point. Uh, I was moving around. I think I, I might have already lived in New York at that point or something.
0: That's a long time. I mean, you would have been twenty nine or thirty. Yeah. At that, that point. Yeah. So I mean, the, the the band really
1: like it. Never really like. Legitimately broke up, but it's... It's
0: done. <laughs> we'll see. We'll yeah. see, right? Well, I mean, do you have, a Do you have a favorite memory of the band? That's... A, Other than that... Well, you were talking about the one show, right? When Face to Face canceled. Animal Face show.
1: Yeah, I don't... You know, nothing specific. I, I really just... Kind of like I mentioned earlier, um... My favorite times playing music have always been, like, the process of recording records. And uh, I think that kind of stays true to, like, ever, every record we ever did. It was just... That's the part of uh, playing music that I personally enjoy the most. It's probably because I grew up, like, going to the studios with my dad. And so it kind of feels like it's it's, like, in there, like, embedded, like, deep, you know? Just, like, I get comforted just by being in a room that has no windows and a bunch of gear in it, you know? So that that whole that whole part of that lifestyle is what really like lit me up uh, for like that that ten years that we were like doing the band like really actively and it's the thing i I miss the most about doing music seriously is like looking forward to like making that whole making that whole thing like become something more than just like an idea in your head The touring stuff is really fun but um but really it, it didn't it, it didn't inspire me as much as like actually creating music does.
0: Cool. Anything else you wanna to touch on? You feel like you've been well represented? Yeah man, I feel good about it. I feel real good.
1: It was nice to, it was actually really nice to revisit all that stuff after all these years. So thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, thank you.